Right, if you've got a Bible this morning, grab it and make your way to right where Victoria was reading Luke chapter 22. I'm going to get my keys and my phone out of my pocket because they're going to bother me the whole time. Um, and I want to give you a heads up. That song that we sang, uh, the very first song of like the two part set, we're not doing a three song set because we're going to do the Lord's Supper today. Uh, a Mighty Fortress is Our God. That's a song written by Martin Luther. So it's 500 years old and October the 29th. Okay, that's two days before October the 31st, which is Halloween, but it also is was called Reformation Days when the Reformation kind of started with Martin Luther. You can argue some different dates, but it's really when it's recognized as starting with the 95 Theses. Anyhow, that day in here, October the 29th, we are going to kind of have a just a celebration because this is the 500th year, 500th anniversary of the birth of the Protestant Reformation. So that day, the we're going to turn the piano into an organ, and we're only going to have organ music. Uh, and we're going to sing old songs. When I say old, I'm not talking Fanny Crosby old. I'm talking Martin Luther old, okay? Old songs. Songs from the 700s, songs from the 1500s. And then we'll get, a, I think we'll, the, the, the newest one we'll sing is Holy, 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 which is like 1850, maybe 1840, something like that. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, and so just be here for that. I think it's going to be a great day. We'll be talking about the five solas, if you're familiar with that theologically. We'll be talking about the five solas out of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, but if you have your Bible, like I said, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. And if you are a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, you still may recognize like what this table is down here in front of us. And what is what it is, is it's a table that's been prepared for us today to observe one of two ordinances in the church. And this one's called the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to be observing that today. But what is the Lord's Supper or, or communion? Maybe you've heard it described as communion or even in some traditions, the Eucharist. What what is this? What is it all about? Why do we take the Lord's Supper? What is it? purpose? Why do we observe it regularly? Are there rules governing it? Are there certain people who should take it and certain people who should not take it? What's the purpose of it? What, what, what is all this about? And that's what we're going to be talking about today out of Luke chapter 22, because as we've just been journeying through the book of Luke and we get to chapter 22, we come to something that's been historically referred to as the Last Supper. And it's called the Last Supper because this is the last time that Jesus and his disciples are going to celebrate the Passover. But it's the Last Supper in the fact that this is the last time they're going to eat a supper at all because this is Thursday night. Okay, he's going to be betrayed this night. He's going to be arrested this night. He's less than 24 hours away from the cross, less than 24 hours away from his death. So this is the last time that they eat anything at all. And so in that way, this is the Last Supper. But at the same time, it's also the first ever observance of the Lord's Supper, of communion. And so in a way, the Last Supper is also the first supper. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk about this first supper by itself. But then I also want to talk about the ongoing act of observing communion, of observing the Lord's Supper and then close out real fast by answering a couple of FAQs as it relates, frequently asked questions that relates to the Lord's Supper. And so I hope that this will be helpful for us. I hope this will be clarifying for us. I hope this will open your eyes a little bit to um, the grandeur of the Lord's Supper and how it is a little bit more than maybe what we initially thought of when we first came in here this morning. And so 
With all that said, Luke chapter 22, you're going to be on page 881. We'll be here for about half the sermon, and then we're going to go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for the second half. And that's on page 951. Luke 22, page 881, we'll start reading in verse 14. We'll read this in its entirety, and then we'll come back through it. Picking up right where Victoria left off. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so pay attention to the text here real closely. Right. Verse 17, you've got Jesus. He takes a cup and he distributes it. And then verse 19 He takes bread and he breaks it and then he distributes that. And then verse 20, he takes another cup. And so if you have a Christian background or even if you don't, but you've seen the Lord's Supper before, you realize, hey, yeah, there's bread and there's a cup, but there's not two cups. So what's going on here? Why are there two cups here? Well, remember, why do they initially gather? What are they celebrating? Passover. So they're here to celebrate the Passover And so this cup in verse 17 is the last cup of Passover, like in God's eyes, ever. Because beginning in verse 19, the Lord Jesus does something that's never been done before. In 1400 years of celebrating the Passover, he does something completely new. He takes the bread and he says, you see this bread and he breaks it. This bread is a sign. It's a symbol of my body that is going to be broken and is going to be given for you. This has never been done. This is a new thing. And so what is Jesus doing in this moment? He is remaking the old covenant meal of Passover into the new covenant meal of the Lord's Supper. And so if you're taking notes, number one that we're going to talk about here, this first supper, right, it is a fulfillment and a remaking of Passover. The first supper was a fulfillment and a remaking of Passover. And so Passover, we've got to talk Passover. What is Passover? Why have the Jews been celebrating Passover for 1400 years? Why was Jesus celebrating Passover with his disciples here? Well, we've got to go back to Exodus. We've got to go back to the land of Egypt. John read, and I'm going to reread part of it here in a second. But after 400 years of being in slavery, God sends Moses and says, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. He refuses And so God sends nine plagues on the land. Pharaoh still refuses. And so God sends a tenth and most devastating plague. The death of the firstborn of every human and every animal in the land. But on the night before this happened, God told his people to have a particular, and look right at me, supper. A particular supper where they would sacrifice and eat a lamb and they would put some of the blood on the doorposts of their home. And when the Lord came through to kill the firstborn, he would see the blood of the lamb 
And he would see that there had been a substitute death and he would pass over that home. And so let me just read a little bit of it to you again. Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses. And when they eat it, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it because they're about to head out. So he's like, be ready. Like, this is kind of takeout. This is kind of fast food here. You shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. They're leaving that night. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so why did God spare his people? It wasn't because that they deserved to live and the Egyptians deserved to die. No, the reason God passed over his people was that they were covered by the blood of the sacrifice. Cross, foreshadow, foreshadow of the cross. We are saved not because of ourselves, not because we're inherently better. In fact, we're here because we inherently know we're not and we need a savior. You're saved by the blood of the sacrifice. And so God then commanded them to celebrate the Passover meal as a yearly memorial of his deliverance of them. And so verse 25 of this same chapter. But I turned to Luke, so that's not going to work. Back to 25. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And so this Passover meal then, okay? This Passover, and you stay with me here because we're going to build on some. The Passover meal then has marked off God's people. All right. It defines who they are. So when people say, who are the Israelites? They are the ones that the Lord had delivered out of Israel. That is who they are. He's freed them from Egypt. And so this is why Israelites and not foreigners were allowed to eat the Passover because it marked off who were God's people. And so if a foreigner wanted to celebrate Passover, he first had to become an Israelite. How do you become an Israelite? By faith in the one true God. And then a sign of that faith, males get circumcised. Now, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, I'm going to start tying some stuff together, though. I want us to begin to see the parallels here with the Lord's Supper. Just as the Passover marked off the nation of Israel, so the Lord's Supper marks off who it is that makes up the church. 
Just as foreigners or non-believers were not to eat the Passover, so non-believers are not to eat the Lord's Supper. If a non-believer wants to eat the Lord's Supper, he first needs to become a believer. How do you become a believer? By faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, His life, death, resurrection in our place for our sins, and then as a sign of that faith, not circumcision, but baptism. And so quoting Bobby Jameson here, watch this. He's going to give two almost identical paragraphs, one about the Exodus, one about the cross. Listen. In the Exodus, God saved a people for Himself through the blood of a sacrifice. He freed them from slavery and made them His own. And on the night before the great act of deliverance, He gave them a meal to celebrate ever after. This meal defined the people. They all celebrated it. And no one else could. By retelling the story of their salvation, this meal brought God's past act of deliverance into the present. And it told every Israelite that they had been a slave and that their God is a God who rescues. And in a similar but even greater way, on the cross, God saved a people for Himself through the blood of Jesus' sacrifice. He freed them from sin and made them His own. And on the night before the great act of deliverance, Jesus gave them a meal to celebrate ever after. This meal defines God's new people in Christ. They all celebrate it, and no one else should. By retelling the story of our salvation, this meal brought God's past act of deliverance into the present, and it tells every Christian that we were lost in sin and that our Lord Jesus is the God who saves. And so understand, when Jesus and His disciples celebrated this Passover meal, this was not just the last Passover of Jesus' life and earthly ministry. This is the last Passover from God's eyes that should ever be celebrated. Because that's over. There's a new covenant. All right? From this point on, there's a new supper. Not the Passover feast, but the Lord's Supper. Not to remember the Lamb of the blood. Not to remember the blood of a lamb on the door but to remember the blood of the Lamb of God on the cross. Everything that Passover foreshadowed came to a head in the cross. Sin has been dealt with finally and fully. And so you can think of this first supper. What's happening right here in Luke 22 is kind of like one of those video sequences. Jeff or somebody in the sound booth can put this together really well for me. I've got to click on certain buttons and in iMovie or iPhotos on a slideshow. Russell knows a little bit about that from this week. But you take that and, and you can take an image and it, and it begins fading away. At the same time, there's another image kind of fading in. That's what's happening right here. Passover's fading away in this moment. This first ever Lord's Supper is fading and in is coming the Lord's Supper. It's morphing from an old covenant supper to a new covenant supper. Jesus said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my body. And so again, the first supper was a fulfillment of and a remaking of Passover. All right, that's number one. Number two, <clears throat> long, like Puritan-like definition here. The first supper was the institution of a multifaceted memorial to be regularly repeated. Okay, so the first supper was the institution 
of a multifaceted memorial to be regularly repeated. Did everybody get that? Do I say it again? Or you just want me to keep going so we can get out of here? Word. Got it. First Supper, I'm going to do it anyhow. First Supper was the institution of a multifaceted memorial to be regularly repeated. And so we've all, <clears throat> excuse me. And so we've all, man. <clears throat> and so we've, there we go. And so we've already talked about how it was you know, being instituted by Jesus in this moment. All right. We've already talked about that. And we've already talked about how it's to be regularly repeated and observed. I'm, yes, thank you. Now I want to try to explore how it is a multifaceted memorial. Okay, how it's a multifaceted memorial, because while the Lord's Supper is really grounded in the first supper. Okay, so we're talking long term Lord's Supper. It's grounded in the first supper here. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, different facets of its beauty and its purpose become visible and become more clear. So I remember when I was buying Sarah a diamond when we got, uh, you know, we we're going to get engaged. Um, <clears throat> and until you buy a diamond, you don't realize like all that. I mean, I had no idea. But when you look at a diamond, there's all these different facets of different ways, depending upon how you look at it. And all these just I mean, it's just beautiful. There's all these different facets. I had no idea. I was like, it's just a. See through rock like wasn't a big deal. Uh. Uh-uh. Um, and the word suffer is similar. There are all these different facets and purposes for the word suffer. Thank you. All these different facets and, and purposes. And throughout the New Testament, it really shows us these different facets, these different pur- purposes. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11 really kind of puts them all to puts many of them all together in one place for us to look at. So let's go 1 Corinthians 11, page 951. Sorry, page 958. We're going to talk about five facets of the Lord's Supper, five purposes of this memorial. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter 11, page 958. And again, like we just did, let me read it to you in bulk and then we'll come back through it. <clears throat> I think I'm good now. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth, which was kind of jacked up a little bit. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What do you not have? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. Took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Would a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup? For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, anyone who does that eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. And so the first facet that we see here of the Lord's Supper, right, in this section, this Lord's Supper, the first facet that we see, letter A, is that it is an ordinance of the church. Okay, it is an ordinance of the church. That is, it is a church act. That is why Paul is getting after the Corinthians here for treating it so individualistically. And so, I mean, just look at the togetherness that we see here. Verse 17, he's talking about you're supposed to be coming together. Verse 18, when you come together as a church. Verse 20, come together. Verse 33, come together. Verse 34, gather together. And so clearly the call here is that the church corporately is to do this. Okay, the Lord's Supper wasn't something that individuals or families or small groups did. It was something that the whole church did together. That's why it's called an ordinance of the church. And there's two of them, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they actually go hand in hand a lot more than you might think. Because baptism, you can kind of think of baptism as like the oath of office. And so God invisibly saves people and then thus makes them a member of the universal church. But baptism provides a way for both the citizens and the nations it right, gives them a visible and public swearing-in ceremony. Think of it that way in a local church. And that's what it is. It's a public profession of faith. Front door of the church. And so if baptism is the initiating oath sign of a local church, the Lord's Supper is the renewing oath sign of the local church. And so if baptism binds one to many, the Lord's Supper binds many into one body. And so the Lord's Supper is not the place for private, closed eyes, mystical encounter with God. It's to be celebrated by the church as a church. And it entails a responsibility to the church. It's how we personally re-ratify our commitment to Christ and this people. As well as how we corporately ensure that the church keeps a clear fence around itself. That is to say... That baptism and the Lord's Supper draws a line between the church and the world. They mark off who it is that defines a church. And so letter A, one of the facets to understand is that the Lord's Supper is a church act. Okay, It is an ordinance of the church. Another facet is that the Lord's Supper is an expression of unity. All right, Letter B, it's an expression of unity. So we're going to flip back one chapter from 1 Corinthians 11 to chapter 10 real quick page 16, or to verse 16. And in the midst of a uh, teaching about uh, idolatry, 
the Apostle Paul says this. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So there you got the cup. The bread that we break, there's the bread, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. And so what Paul is saying is that the Lord's Supper, like the actual act of observing the Lord's Supper, is what makes the many of us into one body. That as we reflect on what Christ has done for us in the cross, we have a vertical communion with Him, we have a vertical fellowship with Him, and then we have a horizontal communion and fellowship with one another as a body of covenanted believers together. This is something that we, corporately, we do. And that we, like, just listen to this. The cup of the blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread. We, who are many, are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. And the we here is crucial. Because again, this is a church act. And so it's not as if we're simply a couple of hundred people in here having particularly meaningful private devotions and we just happen to be all having them in the same room at the same time. Mm. There's something because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so in the Lord's Supper, because we have fellowship with Christ, we also have fellowship with each other. And it's the Lord's Supper itself that gives expression to our union with Christ and therefore our unity in Christ. Because the church's one foundation is Christ. It's not ethnicity. It's not politics. It's not sports teams. It's not socioeconomic status. It's not nationality or citizenship. It's not having a lot of things in common. It's having the most important thing in all the universe in common. Christ. That's our foundation. That's it. And the Lord's Supper gives us a chance to make that visible. And so it's an expression of our unity as a church. Communion with Christ begets communion with each other. Right? And that brings us to the third facet in the heart of this multifaceted memorial. And this letter C is that it's a symbolic remembrance of Christ's life and death. It's a symbolic remembrance of Christ's life and death. And so we're back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse 23. <clears throat> For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so all Paul's done right here is just quoted the words that we read in Luke 22 earlier from Jesus. And so let's look at what Jesus has said here. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Okay, this is my body, which is for you. Now, obviously, this is symbolism. So if you've got a Roman Catholic background, I'm about to just talk a little bit about this. This bread that he's holding here isn't magically becoming like a piece of Jesus's flesh, like the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation holds. 
the Jews would recognize with all of the acts of symbolism that they had, they would immediately understand Jesus is holding there and saying, this is my body, not saying like I plucked this from my side and this is my body. It's a symbol of my body. And he's saying, I'm going to give it. Okay, I'm going to give it to you. It's going to it's for you. So make sure you understand as well, Jesus is not a helpless martyr on his way to the cross and he just couldn't help himself. No, he's orchestrating all of this. He's in control of all this. He's working it all out. And so just as he had sent his he'd sent John and Peter into Jerusalem to prepare a room to celebrate the Passover. And when they get there, it's prepared, it's ready. So Jesus has been working all throughout history, orchestrating everything so that they come to this moment in history and it's ready and he's ready to give his life. In our place for our sins, fulfilling everything that had been said. Even Isaiah 53, 700 years prior, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned aside, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he did that. Everybody up here, he did that for you. And 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 for me. And for us. He was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The word laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the gospel. Jesus got what we deserve so that we can get what he deserved. And he's given us this new covenant of grace. This is what the cup is all about. It was promised in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Right? New covenant. And with the house of Judah, not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. All right, remember, Passover is being remade. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, Holy Spirit, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is our hope. And this is why the Lord's Supper is more than just a mere reminder of Jesus' death and resurrection. It is a covenantal Remembrance. It is a meal of covenantal remembrance. It brings the past into the present, putting our lives within the saving story of Jesus. And so when we receive the Lord's Supper, we are effectually declaring, I eat this bread 
and drink this cup because of what the Lord did for me on the cross when he saved me from my sin. That's the declaration that we make when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, which is why someone who's not been saved isn't to take it. They can't declare that. That's the declaration we're making. And so, friend, Christ's body has been broken. And His blood has been poured out for you. I can't explain that. Except to say, we have no idea how much we're loved by God. We really don't. No idea. Let's keep going. Most high-fasted memorial is an ordinance of the church and its expression of our unity. It's a symbolic remembrance of Christ's life, death, life and death. And then, fourthly, it's an eschatological appetizer. It's an eschatological appetizer. That is, it is a foretaste of the future. We get a little sample. All right. Look at verse 26 here, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so every time we partake of the bread and of the wine, we are proclaiming Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and Christ's return. Because just as the Passover found its greater fulfillment in the Lord's Supper, so the Lord's Supper is going to find its greater fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth and marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation chapter 19. And so even as the Lord's Supper looks back on what Christ has done and pulls it into the present, so it also opens our eyes in this present wilderness that we live in to the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. It points us there. And then a final facet that I want us to look at this morning is that while the Lord's Supper is inherently a church ordinance, where we have communion with Christ and therefore we have communion with each other, we do have to approach the table as individuals. And so, how are we to do that? How are we to approach the table? Now, the Lord's Supper provides us with a very special, and this is letter E, opportunity for self-reflection. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity for self-reflection. And so verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The word supper is not a, something to play around with. And so how are we to approach the table? I want to give you four things that, that I think are helpful to think about, to contemplate, to dwell on as you approach the Lord's table. Number one, contemplate the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus paid for you. His body was broken. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. Upon Him was the iniquity of us all laid. Contemplate the cross. Contemplate the sacrifice that Christ paid for you. I think we get that one probably if you've been part of the church for any length of time. Also though, contemplate your brothers and sisters in here. 
Think about them. The meal is a mark of our unity. It's the many being made one body. And so give thanks to God for saving all the people around you. And rejoice that in gaining Christ as your Savior, you gained His people as your family. Third, contemplate the future promise of Christ. This eschatological appetizer we talked about. There's coming a day when Christ the groom comes for His bride, the church, and throws the biggest wedding party ever. And all that He's promised, new heavens, new earth, no more death, no more disease, no more sin, no more sorrow, tears wiped away, everything made wrong, made right, it's coming. Contemplate that. And then fourthly, contemplate yourself. Examine yourself. Your sin. Look at it. Search your heart for it. Invite the Holy Spirit to examine your heart and show that there, show the wicked ways. Not if, like, but that there are wicked ways inside of you. And own it. And confess it. And repent of it. And be broken over it. And mourn over it. But dear friend, don't stop there. The word suffer is not to lay guilt on you, but to remind you that the guilt has been taken from you. That Christ died for you. And your sin, you're not there. You're not in your sins. Those do not define you. They do not hold you. You've been set free. The captive has been released. And so now go and sin no more. So be broken and mournful, but don't stay there. Remember the point of the cross. Forgiveness lavished upon us, all who believe. This is the good news that the Lord's Supper points to. And we're going to have a chance to celebrate that in just a minute. But real quick, I'm going to run through two FAQs. I've pretty much already covered them, so this will take just a second. FAQ number one that I get all the time. What what like who what gatherings may celebrate the Lord's Supper? What what gatherings? What group of people can celebrate the Lord's Supper? All right, it's a church ordinance. Okay, it is a church ordinance. It's about the church, and that's so so so. What gathering may celebrate the Lord's Supper? A church gathering. That's who. That's why I don't do it at weddings. That's why I don't do it at a community group. So I don't do it with my family. It's an ordinance of the corporate church together. Now, let me be clear. There are Christians who differ on this question and celebrate the Lord's Supper in various other contexts, and all they're seeking to do is glorify God. Awesome. That's great. I just think they're wrong. But that's great. And it's not a sin. I just think they're wrong. Or, or, or they haven't contemplated deeply enough the connection that Scripture puts so closely between the church and the Lord's Supper. And so let's not be silly and self-righteous about this. This is secondary. This is tertiary. But it's, I think it's to be in the context of a church only. All right? Second question. Who can participate in the Lord's Supper? All right? I get this one all the time, especially from my kids. Why can't I have 
we had some folks in our house this week and they described it, their, their child described it as the tiniest snack in the world. <laughs> Why can't I have the tiniest snack in the world? So who can participate in the Lord's Supper? Baptized believers, in a nutshell, who belong to a church. Right? Not just a conglomeration of Christians. Because, again, remember our discussion on Passover. Just as the Passover marked off the nation of Israel, so the Lord's Supper marks off the church. And just as foreigners or non-believers were not to eat the Passover, so non-believers are not to eat the Lord's Supper. And if a non-believer wants to eat the Lord's Supper, he first needs to become a believer. How do you become a believer? By faith in the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ and His life, death, burial, and resurrection in your place for your sins. And then as a sign of that faith, baptism. And so who can take it? Well, number one, you have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Number two, you have to be baptized. Number three, you are to be a member in good standing in a local church. And while the primary aim here is that the Lord's Supper is for a local church, it seems that in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul and Luke, who wrote Luke, and a few others received the Lord's Supper with the church at Troas. And so that's why here at Providence, we open up the table to those who are believer, are baptized believers in good standing in a local church. Maybe not here, but a local church. And that's why I think it's completely appropriate for us to once a year join hands with our good friends at South Point Community Church and um, Life Community. We do it on Good Friday and share the Lord's Supper as a mark of our unity in the universal church. And so there's just some real quick FAQs. If you've got some more FAQs, I'd be glad to you know, try to help you with those. Um, but this is the Lord's Supper. It's, it's more than a memorial service. It's a multifaceted memorial that's a pretty astounding thing. It's about Christ and it's about one another. And so we're going to observe that now. Focusing on those things. Christ's body and blood given for you. Making the many of us one. Communion with Christ. Communion with one another's brothers and sisters in Christ. We gain Christ as our Savior. We gain one another as our family. Let's pray together. The men who are going to come serve will go ahead and come serve. Father God, as we prepare to take this meal, we remember that it reflects the body of our Lord Jesus and His blood that was poured out for us to rescue us from our sins. We are rebel creatures. We do not deserve salvation, but You are a kind and merciful God who has made a way for your rebel creatures to be redeemed and be made right. And not on the basis of anything we do, but on the basis of what Christ has done for us. His perfect life for our imperfect life. His undeserved death for our deserved death. And His resurrection as a foretaste of our resurrection and a guarantee of our salvation. 
So, Father, as we prepare to remember this meal, we know that you are with us in a very special way. And so help us to contemplate what this is doing as we reflect on you and as we reflect on the church together. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.